to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. We have contracts for a reason. They set out the rules and expectations for us all to operate in a sponsorship for the good of all and they set out with all the right intentions to do good work but also to protect ourselves but what happens when we get blindsided and things change so quickly through no fault of any of the contracted parties sure we know that the contracts all have force majeure but how does that reconcile with our often spruiked approach that sponsorships should be a true relationship? And how does that reconcile with sponsors as a collective group who would want the sport and entertainment industry to return to normal as quickly as possible so that they can continue to activate sponsorships and reach their target audiences? Surely there is a vested interest in working things through. But how does that happen when so many businesses are directly threatened and are dealing with an ever-changing landscape and one where there just is no certainty about what it looks like on the other side? Will in-progress seasons be completed or will they be abandoned? Will one-off events be shifted or simply cancelled and, and run next year? Who knows? For me, while it is hard, it's an amazing opportunity for rights holders and brands to, to really come to the table and collaborate on innovation, but that innovation still has to be executed within the contract. One man who knows the sport business space and contracts well is James Earl, partner and head of sports business group at Fladgate LLP in London. James is regarded as one of the leading experts in the international sports sector because with over a decade of experience, he has truly unique expertise working with a broad range of national and international governing bodies, funders, teams, clubs and investors in sport. James is exceptionally well connected and his pragmatic guidance is consistently sought out by senior stakeholders across the international sports industry. James's deep level of experience in sport comes from working with Manchester City Football Club, the London 2012 Olympics, 2015 Rugby World Cup and also acting as sole legal advisor to the delivery vehicles for the London 2017 World Athletics and Para-Athletic Championships. James joins us on the show later on to answer lots of questions about how we should all be navigating through this legal space right now. I'm Daniel Loyston and welcome to episode 82 of Inside Sponsorship. Whether you're an essential worker, still in the office on the front line, or like most of us, stood down or working from home, I hope that you are safe and as comfortable as you can be and I hope this episode helps a little. Exciting times for me as I have a few shout outs to give and the first one goes to Tom Huggins, co-founder and chief operating officer at Green Room Digital. Tom connected on LinkedIn and he said, hi Daniel, long time listener, first time caller, I guess. Not sure why it took me so long to connect with you, but like everyone in the industry, I'm mates with Tomo and we do a bit of work with Core through some joint partners. Anyway, was just catching up on the podcast and heard Daniel Collier give us a little shout out. So just wanted to say thanks to you both and that the team over here in the UK and in Australia have been enjoying what you guys are putting out there. Great to hear from you, Tom, and thanks for the kind words. And listeners, Tom and I have been having a little bit of back and forth with messages about the, the innovative and digital opportunities that you're all presented with 
at the moment, and I think we'll bring that conversation onto the podcast in due time. Richard Sarnig. Richard, I hope I pronounced your last name correctly there. Also connected on LinkedIn as he was keen to get along to the Australians working in sport events in New York that Eddie Fitzgibbon was speaking about. Right now, it's a sad time for New York and our thoughts are with them and hoping everyone can get back to what they love doing as soon as possible. Before we hear from James Earl, Mark Thompson, Core Software's former head of international business, makes some great points in his last blog about, in this very tough time for the industry, how important it is for us all to be supporting each other in sponsorship to navigate these unknown times. And you might have just picked up that I said former and last when I was introducing Mark just then, and that is because, as was planned for some time, Mark has finished up with Core, but I was lucky enough to squeeze one last blog and one last chat out of him before he left. Here's Mark. Mark, welcome to the show. I don't know where to even start at the moment with all the COVID-19 stuff and and just regurgitating what other people have already said. And and I think we all understand it pretty deeply now and and have a, a reasonable view of where we stand. And obviously things are changing. A lot of the commentary around sports particularly has been about how and when leagues will will start again and what they might look like and how that's going to impact all of us from from team ownership and and support structures right through to the fans and the engagement and then a lot of the content so far has been around how to navigate specific things like how do we keep engaging fans or or running virtual events or, or things like that. But your latest blog takes a bit of a different approach and, and focuses in on how you think we really do need to be supporting each other at the moment. Yeah, mate. Uh, thanks for having me. This is our first remote um, podcast. Every other one to now has been face to face. You're so. probably right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's a sign of the times, and and you know, pertinent to this topic. And you know, we've all seen so many posts on social channels, LinkedIn, etc., around how to how to navigate and how to run your business through this pandemic. And everyone seems to to have an opinion. My, my take here is is it's going to be tough, right? It's it's definitely going to be tough. And our industry, sports and entertainment, is had such immediate impact and effect in terms of just events being cancelled, fans not being able to attend games and, you know, tickets not being able to be redeemed and all that sort of stuff has just had an an, an immediate and massive financial impact across the world of sport. And so, you know, while businesses the world over are hurting, you know, our, our industry isn't seen as a vital service. So, However, it is sort of vital to the fabric of many people's way of life. So my, my mind immediately switched over to, well, this thing has to bounce back quickly to enable people to carry on lives in a really positive manner after this really tough period of time that everybody's going through. And so, you know, f- for that to be the case, how we act now is going to ensure that there even still is an industry or still are sports that we like to attend in the future in any state of resemblance of what it was, you know, just a few months ago. And so I decided just to pen a few thoughts around, you know, why people should still support each other, especially within our industry where possible. And I totally understand that there are situations where that can't happen. You know, however, even in the last 24 hours in Australia, the government have sort of unveiled some stimulus measures which should allow sporting bodies to maintain their staff even if that looks significantly different in 
what they get paid, it should still allow them to maintain engagement with staff and appointment of staff so that, you know, the day, the very day things turn around, people can bounce back into the office and return to, to normal, you know, albeit with a bit of a lag on revenues. And so that, that foundation, that support is extremely important. A lot of governments are doing that. A lot of leagues and, and governing bodies are also trying to put their own packages together to help maintain the viability of their members and their leagues and their teams and, and things like that. But for us, do you think there's still value for sponsors in the period from now until when we start to get back to normality? Yeah. Like, I mean, you look at the current environment and, and – the immediate fear is sponsors are going to walk away in droves just because fixtures aren't being played. And on the surface of it, I get that. And like, it's definitely not going to be the sponsorship managers of these brands that are saying we're out. We don't, you're not giving us a fixture. So we're bouncing away here, but there is going to be pressure from above in businesses all over. And some of those are sponsoring brands that need to cut costs and because there is no surface layer, you know, delivery of content being events, you know, being that sporting fixtures or concerts or whatever, then that's an easy kind of thing to target because that people aren't able to to honour contracts and you know, you know, lawyers are probably busy at the moment with force majeure clauses being investigated and things, but. But some sponsors simply won't make it through this period. And so those ones you understand having to kind of really try their best to, to shut down and, and, and you know, stop sponsoring and stuff. But the fact is that people are still engaged. And you and I have spoken for years around good sponsorships being around understanding objectives of partners and delivering value against those objectives. Now, right now is probably a time when we need to cut the the contract down in half and you know not even look at the assets and actually just try and find the value and the reasons people are partnering each other and you know I'm still looking at this and going people haven't walked away from sport voluntarily it's not like teams that we've seen go broke in the past because fans have stopped turning up or sponsors have walked away because of the sport itself or whatever this is different this is a forced shutdown because of a you know, uh, a health pandemic around the world. As a result of that, fans are in cra- craving content more than ever, right? So rights holders should be assessing the assets they can't deliver. Yep. We're actually seeing a huge spike in the usage of our platform around our clients being able and, and wanting to assess what assets they can't deliver and what the value of those are and the frequencies and things like that. And then sitting down with their brands and working out what can we deliver, what inventory can we create more of to work with partners and still extract as much value as, as possible. And, you know, that way we are still providing fan engagement needs. We are still providing the ability for brands to connect to audiences that they don't own, that they're borrowing through their rights holder. And, you know, there's no magic wand to suddenly switch that ownership over just because the games aren't playing. So you still got to work on that. And so in my mind, you know, those partnerships that are more thinking about the strategic reason that they are together should still be able to find value through this period, even without things happening on the pitch. I think it's a good point about 
regressing might not be the right word, but going back to the basics and, and, and looking at your suite of sponsors and brands and thinking, okay, what were the objectives and what were the goals? Because now it's just about how to deliver them, not necessarily about what was delivered. So your view is that we need to obviously keep the ecosystem running and those stimulus packages from governments around the world and, and leagues themselves certainly help that. I don't think you're going to get many arguments on that front, but how do we actually work together on that front to, to help keep the ecosystem running? Yeah, I mean, this, this this thought of mine may very well just be, you know, fantasy, but what I'm worried about here is, is so I'm not just talking about sport and entertainment, main attraction and content here. I'm talking about everybody within the ecosystem that make it work, right? The vendors, the the people that sell merchandise, the you know bus drivers that get people to the game, the bloke that sells the coffee at the in the cafe and things like that. You know, it's it's been on my mind for a while. Actually, prior to the COVID nineteen outbreak, I had a conversation with somebody who I really value within the, within the sports industry here in Australia and think that they you know have a huge future in the industry and they had taken the decision to step away from the sports industry because of the frustrations they were having around how they were being treated by people that they supply their service to colleagues and the he said, she said, nature of of the political game that surrounds sport, right? This is what how they explained it to me. And it, it got me thinking back then, like, we've got to look after each other in our industry to keep the industry together. And then it just happened like 10 days later, then, you know, shit hit the fan and our world as we knew it changed. And this has just highlighted my thought there, right, is that, to keep things ticking, we need to keep the people that we know and love that keep our industry as is around somehow in our industry. You know, that may include sponsors and clubs and rights holders working together to keep some form of relationship going and some cash flowing through the door. You know, it, it includes fans not demanding their ticketing and their fan and their membership money back because the club hasn't been able to deliver on the games. You know, it includes stadium operators not, you know, demanding rent from their vendors. It includes the people not ripping up contracts because this is an opportune time to do so. And because it all has flow-on effects to other people that derive a livelihood, but not just a livelihood, that derive their passion and interest from our, from our industry. And so my thoughts there are, you know, we need to keep the ecosystem running in terms of keeping people involved trying to minimize staff layoffs where possible or if they happen having some sort of policy that those people get their jobs back if they want them no questions asked right hr process can go out the window as far as i'm concerned to get those people back into jobs you know help small businesses and suppliers get through this time so that they're still there on the other side because that's that's the big problem and and i put a post on linkedin today to say you know, big sport business, you know, the big professional leagues have run biz the sports as big businesses for some time now. And so, therefore, they have been able to be a little bit flamboyant with their spending. And we've seen in Australia two, two occasions of that recently come out in the press around, you know, um, player pension funds being utilised and things. And that that's now going to change post this 
the way sport is run is going to take a while to get back on its feet, but it's also going to change the long-term outlook on how sport operates so that we are better insured and prepared for if this situation is to pop up again. And then I thought, well, you know what? The sports and entertainment industry is really lucky because there's a whole bunch of grassroots sporting organisations that live their life like this. You know, I worked in, I was general manager of the Ringer Rugby Club and I remember a time there where if I made a $500 decision, that was the wrong one. That could have had a critical impact on our business being able to trade solvently, you know. That's how tight, tight to the line that used to run and we were trying to, you know, keep five teams on the field with jerseys, with coaches, with medical equipment, with physiotherapists uh, adhering to laws. But then, you know, every now and then New South Wales Rugby just go, you're not getting your $110,000 grant this year. And small business was would maybe, you know, their son might have stopped playing, so their sponsorship ended. And so grassroots sports literally live and die by things coming and going like that, and they run on the small smell of a oily rag regardless. And that takes a lot of skill, right? There's a lot of lifetime sports administrators that get paid it's their full-time job but they operate in that space those skill sets are now coming to the forefront and i actually think that some of the big bodies would could could do worse than getting a few of those people in to help shape up how how business is run at the top end of town some of those guerrilla tactics and and it always struck me as a bit of a paradox with sport particularly because on one hand we speak about sports being professional and and big business and then on the other hand we talk about sticking together and, and being a family and you spoke then about sticking together and looking after each other to help ensure that we all bounce back and and we talk about sports and clubs being family and probably never before is it going to be more important around that point that you make about looking after everybody in that ecosystem? Because you mentioned everyone in the game that that makes it work and and that clearly includes fans and you've got to plead to them. Yeah, look, I've seen and heard some amazing and also not so amazing stories already through this period. And, and, you know, keeping in mind that I'm not, it's not lost on me that, some people are just not going to be able to do this stuff, right? Some people are just not going to be able to keep their staff. Some people are just not going to be able to keep their sponsorships. I get that. But those that are looking to exploit this situation for a short-term gain, they're the ones that are going to lose out themselves in the long run because I saw a, a Facebook post from the president of Warringah Rugby Club, the Rats, who I used to play for, so I follow them online. And Phil Parsons is the president and, and a guy that I respect, I played with actually, and and he's a, you know, has worked in in um, big business for a long time in a very, in a senior role. He's got his head switched on, and he made a post that I thought was just brilliant, and and it, and it made mention that the club was hurting, you know, but who isn't? And he called that out, like we're no different than everyone else. It called on fans to continue to buy membership and make donations to their foundation, which is tax deductible, which helped those in need and and for junior development to ensure the club was still there next year, right? But then what it also called upon is we reach out and we call upon our sponsors year on year to support our club. And as I was reading, I was going, oh, here we go, another generic post of asking this, asking for sponsorship in this time or whatever. But it wasn't. It was the opposite. What it was, was we call on our sponsors year on year to keep our club afloat and now more than ever, they need our help. Sponsors of this grassroots club 
are small business owners in the majority, right? And and so what they had done is created a partner portal with links to all their sponsors and what they do. They're encouraging all those fans that had seen the benefit of those sponsors supporting them for 75 years to now return the favour. So go back and, and transact with your sponsors over any other business. Link with their you know, their support being vital to the club. You know, it's now time for the club to repay that. And by keeping that ecosystem alive, by buying from our partners that have supported us and kept us alive means that they will still be alive. And when we come out the other side, they will then support us in return. And that's the ecosystem, right? That's the ecosystem I'm talking about. And I thought that one post was just brilliant and it came from leadership at the grassroots level. So that also then ties back into my previous point. But contrary to that, I also have seen posts from fans of of other sporting team sites demanding their money money back for their membership. I mean, like, there's a lot to say on that. And if I'd had a few beers, it would probably get you know very <laughs> animated. But I just got one simple message right to those people. Like they they didn't buy their tickets so they could go and watch the sport because you can go watch the sport anyway. You can go and buy a casual ticket. You can watch it on TV. You can stream it. There's so many ways to consume it. People buy their membership tickets because they want to support their club and show their support of that club. So if you want your club to be there when all this passes, then that is not the best behavior to make sure that that's going to happen. You know, I'm positive clubs and sports will return the value back whenever they can. It might take them some time, but you know, I wouldn't be blaming them for this and the fact that they've had to, you know, make some changes and whatever. And they, and I certainly wouldn't be putting any unnecessary pressure on them because I'd hate to think what's going through there over, uh, you know, especially in the sports and entertainment industry where livelihoods of, of athletes and entertainment and talent, talent has literally been put on hold and they're not just dealing with one, they're dealing with many plus staff plus suppliers, plus venues, plus broadcasts, plus governing bodies that are making decisions that impact them without their, without their input and then they've got, to man, they've got to manage and then government on top of that because most of them have funding and things based on, you know, playing matches and things like that. The one thing fans can do is actually support their clubs. I, I saw a thing the other day where, where people were pledging their membership for next year already and the, the Canterbury Bulldogs family club in Sydney they, they've got a fan group that has started asking people to renew their memberships now and you know I, I think that's good and and that's what's going to make sure people survive because there will be some that don't survive because of everything crumbling down around them. Any other great examples you've seen over the last couple of weeks since this all exploded about how people have been working well together to support each other? I've seen some really good sponsorship-based activity. You know, we've 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 had uh, Danny Macklin from Leighton Orient. He has had some great examples there of of a partner re-engaging with them to but a support them and b off the back of some really cool interview stuff they've been doing. But we also, you know, closer to home in Australia, we've seen NIB publicly come out and state that the people they sponsor need them more than ever right now. And so they have they've, they have pledged their support that they won't be walking away. Telstra have, have done an automatic rollover of all their partnerships for 12 months. 
regardless of where you are in the term. They've, ro they've, they've rolled over an additional 12 months to help people through this, to give them some certainty. And so Telstra can make, you know, their renewal and re-engagement decisions based on business as usual rather than business as now. And, you know, what I think about that sort of stuff, and I think, you know, those people get it. Right? Sponsorship's not short-term. And anyone that thinks that a, a one-year hiatus, maybe two-year, you know, change in how things run is going to impact their sponsorship, well, they're probably not in sponsorship for the right reasons because successful sponsorships are long-term. They're strategic. They're about pivoting and changing how you engage with people based on how your business changes or how the audiences change their behaviour. And, you know, I, I think that there's actually going to be a massive hockey stick on this right now. We've gone from where we were, we've gone down, and we're probably at the bottom of where we've ever seen it, and hopefully all of us ever will. And then when it comes back, it's going to bounce back hard, right? We're going to see sold-out stadia. We're going to see people watching live sport like never before. The engagement's going to be huge because – you don't know what you've got till you've lost it, and we've currently lost. We've currently lost it, right? And so I think the engagement in everything in everyday life is going to be much more appreciated, and people are going to really get behind it. So sponsors that can hold on through this and, and see through it, they'll get their value returned. And I think it highlights the the saying or the the focus that we tell people, and the whole industry talks about over the last ten years or so, is that sponsorships really are about relationships and when a relationship needs help and it's not going so great and we need to pivot a little bit you don't just walk away from it you dig in you figure out a way to make it work and you understand that it's a a long-term play well just before you, you go on to the next point you know mark cuban wrote something him and he owns the dallas mavericks and he's heavily involved in, in sport and entertainment and he wrote something the other day more generic for business was like use this time to start a conversation with your future customers and and that's what my message is to sponsors is people are looking for content now. We actually might see we've got more people engaging in content than were before because before it was always there. So use this time to start trying to engage with them now and create that familiarity and conversation so that when things get back on track, you can have some bigger wins. 100% agree. Now, it's usually at this point I say, do you have any travel planned and, and where are you going to be and who wants to catch up for a beer or a coffee or, or a chat about sponsorship? But you don't have any travel planned because you're finishing up with Core. I am, mate. So, you know, a lot of people would realise that we sold sponsor uh, to Core in 2018, the end of 2018. So there's been, a, you know, a pretty standard exit plan off the back of that, which was actually the 31st of March all the way along. So, you know, my, my step away has got nothing to do with the coronavirus, actually. It was always going to be on this day. The, it's it's just unfortunate it's not going to go with the big party. Um, <laughs> although I've had a few of those in the last few years. Um, so I'm, I'll live. Um, the, yeah, so I'm, I've decided to, to wind back. I'm staying on as a director of the business in Australia. I'll still be mentoring and overseeing the, the people, but I'll also now be sort of spreading my wings and, and seeing how else I can help the the sports tech and sports commercial industry through some consulting and, and whatever. And, and today is my last day. Yes, because we are recording this on the 31st of March, which is just a, a pure coincidence. But listeners, 
if you've been a long-time listener of the show, you'll know Mark's passion for not only sport, but specifically sponsorship. And I think it'll be hard to get rid of him. He'll always have some some opinions and some some great advice for us. And, and I'm sure that you'll probably pop up on the podcast from, from time to time. But listeners, I would encourage you to stay connected with Mark. If you haven't already connected with him on LinkedIn, you should do so because he gets around. He's got some great experience and he can certainly help you if you want to ring up and, and have a chat. And listeners, if you want to read through Mark's blog in detail, just head to the research resources section and look for the blogs on coresoftware.com and mark i understand now that'll be in the years to come it'll be all about bringing your handicap down on the golf course mate if i can get out there they've uh, closed all courses well, they today did too. that's right so i'm uh i'm a full-time uh work from home school teacher now very good you're feeling the pain like the rest of us yeah i wonder what the people without kids are doing i wonder what the I wonder what it's like i try not to think about it it's depressing <laughs> Thanks for joining us. All right, mate. Thank you. Many of you are grappling with contracts and relationships with sponsors as you sit in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. That's why we thought it would be a great idea to invite one of the leading experts in the international sports sector to come on the show. James Earl is a partner and the head of Sport Business Group at Fladgate LLP in London with over a decade of experience. He has truly unique expertise working with a broad range of national and international governing bodies, funders, teams, clubs, and investors in sport. James is exceptionally well-connected and his pragmatic guidance is consistently sought by senior stakeholders across the international sports industry. James's deep level of experience in sport comes from working with the likes of Manchester City Football Club, the London 2012 Olympics, the 2015 Rugby World Cup, and also acting as sole legal advisor to the delivery vehicles for the London 2017 World Athletics and Para-Athletic Championships. Here's James. James, welcome to the show. We always start with a few icebreaker questions. They're just designed to just to get the show started off and for people to get to know you a little bit. And so the first icebreaker question I've got for you, what is your earliest sporting memory? <laughs> Daniel, uh, well, thanks very much uh, for having me uh, on the podcast, firstly, and great to be here uh, at a very interesting time. First earliest sporting memory, um, geez, there's quite a few being an avid sports fan. I suppose the, the first one and the one that sticks with me throughout my childhood is uh, as a kid growing up in the 80s in Australia, um, it's just wide world of sports and the cricket all summer, usually with a TV on inside and one on, on uh, outside so you could play cricket and listen to the cricket at the same time. Probably that and, uh, you know, going to meet Jason Dunstall as an avid Hawks fan as a, as a little fella um, when he was in the prime of his career. Uh, those are the two that stick out. Outstanding. I am a avid Hawks fan as well, so we might pick up that conversation a little bit after we finish the show. Your second icebreaker question is, what was the first ever sports business contract that you worked on? Probably would be working on a couple of the um, sponsorship deals for Leighton Hewitt, the tennis player who uh, obviously doesn't need much explaining to anyone from Australia or any tennis fan for that matter. I first got into working in sport when I was working at Adelaide at a law firm there. And Leighton was right uh, right at the peak of his career, had sort of, uh, you know, got a few wins at uh, the Queen's Tournament and Wimbledon and the US Open as well. So had hit world number one and, you know, his world just took off. His endorsement contract with Nike and others were kicking in, bonuses were being paid. It was a very exciting time. And it was, to be honest, it was that that really gave me the bug for, for, for being a lawyer but working in the sports sector. 
Very exciting. That would have been a great time. And so your earliest sporting memories in Australia, your first ever sports business contract was was in Australia as well. But now you're working in London with a special focus on sports and entertainment. What took you to London? How did you make your way there? And, and why the focus on the sports sector in law? I should be completely honest. My wife is English, so she said that we'd move back to England uh, for a little while. And uh, as, I, as I say to my Aussie mates, I'm uh, now 15 years into a 10-year plan. So it was affairs of the heart that brought me here. But um, look, uh, why sport and, and why London? Well, I mean, sport for me is a classic case of trying to do my job, being a lawyer, uh, but in an area that I love and find interesting. It's that simple. Having said that, the timing was perfect. I sort of arrived in London in 2005. And apart from that being the year when Australia started losing at every single sport there is, which was uh, an interesting time to be uh, an Aussie in London, <laughs> on a more positive note, what did happen is that the sports sector was really starting to take off. And I think, you know, a combination of luck and timing uh, really today, you know, if you look around the, the, the world in terms of sort of the hubs for the, 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 the sports business sector, London is one of the very biggest hubs uh, alongside the likes of New York and uh, possibly, uh, you know, the likes of Dubai and Singapore and a few other cities to boot. But, but London is very much a, a mecca for, for sport and indeed entertainment. Um, and, you know, you know, if you look at the number of law firms that are now doing sports law offerings to see how, how big it's now become. A Hawks fan... An English wife. We have a lot in common because my wife is English as well, but I'm the opposite. My wife came to Australia in 2003 on a two-year plan, and we're still here. But back to you. Explain to us the different areas of sports and entertainment law that you focus on within Flaggate. Flaggate, just to give a basic explanation, is a is a full-service law firm. We don't just do sports uh, and entertainment. We, we, we sort of are a law firm that offers the, the full range of legal services that one might expect from a from a, a law firm with about uh, 200 lawyers and about 100 uh, support staff. And we're based in Covent Garden, uh, which is a great place to work, I have to say. But in terms of what I do, I head up the sports business group. What does that mean in plain English? Well, we focus on all aspects of the sports sector. There's no bit that we don't like working in or you know, whether that's a, a type of service or a type of sport. Some good examples of what we specialise in, though, would be um, sports investment and finance. So that's buying and selling assets in sport, be it companies, clubs or assets, uh, events uh, as well. And then in terms of the financing side, today sport is a massive industry. It has huge cash demands and there's a, a very big area has grown to essentially finance the requirements of, of sports businesses, particularly football clubs, but not just ex- uh, football clubs. Uh, we also work in things like entertainment finance as well, so that's financing um, concert tours, promoters who will take on the risk of um, tours and then all of the people in that supply chain as well, like agents, and then digital rights holders who will be doing the music uh, publications as well. Other areas we focus on uh, are, of course, the sort of the core area, so commercial rights, exploitation in all its forms. So that's you know, everything from sponsorship and endorsement Right across to um, brand partnerships and a lot of you know sort of activity re- related to the retail uh, sector, for example. So we do a lot of branding work with uh, sort of major brands who will often get to know us through sponsoring or doing branding activities in sport, but then we'll work with them in other areas as well. We also do a lot of you know sports litigation. Let's be honest, sport loves a fight, um, and that's not just on the on the field. So. We have a, a team that specialises in all sorts of litigation in sport, which is a pretty 
specialised area. So I could go on, but I mean, you know, our sort of mission in life really is to be able to sort of, you know, help someone buy the club, help them run the club, uh, help them grow the club uh, as a sort of a, a, an example. And we try to sort of be end-to-end so that we can understand every single part of the, of the sector, but to do it credibly as well, which is obviously a big challenge, but it's, uh, it's extremely good fun trying to meet that. It's a great explanation, very extensive. You mentioned before it's an interesting time to be talking to each other, a challenging time. How are the clients of, of yours and your contacts within the, the wider industry coping with COVID-19? Is it, is it a bit of a situation where everyone's just trying to maybe defend and shore up their own positions before they figure out what to do because they're of so much of the uncertainty? Or is there a, a real genuine commitment to work together on the issues that they're facing? I don't need to tell anybody listening to this that this is a, a very difficult time for, for, for just about everybody in some way, shape or form, not least because of the uncertainty that exists. People just don't know, you know, for example, how long this is going to go. What I think we can probably all agree on is that the longer this situation continues, um, and in particular the longer that it means that just about all forms of professional sport can't operate, then it's going to cause increasing levels of harm to you know, that ecosystem at all levels. Our clients are finding it you know, incredibly challenging. They're turning to us for answers. And as a lawyer, you want to be able to always give the, the, the complete answer and to give the absolute you know, end-to-end advice. Um, the problem is that even for us, there's only so much you can do at a time when things are constantly changing. The situation is, you know, by all accounts from the government here in the UK, going to get worse before it gets better. And certainly it doesn't look like you know life as it was before will be returned to will be returned to that you know for for a good couple of months at the, at the least. Right now, people are taking stock of the situation and understanding what their positions might be, or you know including what rights they do or indeed don't have. What I think has been endearing, at least for now, is that you know the high majority of situations that we know of or are working on, people have been prepared to recognise the situation for what it is, which is something that people simply did not see coming. Um, in a lot of cases, their arrangements, their contractual arrangements didn't necessarily fully cater for this sort of delay. And therefore, there is a, a degree of forbearance, uh, if you like, um, you know, on one or both sides. Clearly, the big question is, how long is that going to last? Because at some point, commercial pressures will have to uh, have to bite and reality might set in or at least begin to look different. Well, let's hope that that doesn't really eventuate too much. You talk about those considerations because the reason I ask that question is because we are seeing a number of global brands either just not paying instalments on sponsorship contracts or or just exiting contracts altogether due to COVID-19 issues. And legally speaking, what considerations do need to be made by either party in the current environment to either both protect or or open up discussions on the current agreements that they have in place? That's a very complex question, but I I think... The considerations that people really need to take into account right now are, you know, clearly, what is your contractual position? You know, do you have something that allows you to um, force a particular position if you don't manage to find the type of amicable arrangement that might suit you? Or is it the case, as we see quite often, that, you know, people don't have a robust position, so they need to try and use, you know, negotiation and goodwill to to try and get um, some kind of, you know, sensible result, at least for the time being. 
the, the bottom line is that um, you know people have paid money to uh, receive something and they're not receiving it in many many cases, be it a broadcaster or a sponsor uh, or similar. It is reasonable for them to ask at some point, you know, if we are not receiving that, what are we going to do about it? Um, you know, plenty of contracts will often have certain types of refund mechanisms, but I have to say, you know, we are aware of a lot of situations where you know contracts are. Yeah, a little bit silent on, on, on this situation. And that is meaning that parties have to sit down and try and work something out. But the problem you've got is that normally parties act with a fair degree of certainty as what they want their time frame and their you know ideal outcome to look like. And even if you know that you're not receiving what you should, you're not actually sure right now what the alternative needs to look like. I mean, is it a full refund? Is it a contract termination? You've got to remember that, you know, for sponsorships, big sponsorships, quite often they will fit into a much, much bigger brand strategy. You know, people uh, may not be aware, um, or at least not everybody may be aware that there's a, you know, an activation budget that's often put around the sponsorship, um, which is, you know, in, in most cases, the same as if not higher than the value of the sponsorship itself. And that, again, can, can, can mean that, you know, to just stop these things altogether is actually not as easy as it might sound. It would uh, affect, you know, what can be a you know, five or 10 or even 15-year you know, brand strategy that a, that a big, big corporate might have launched. And that's where it starts to be a much more complex situation than it might appear for, for people just looking at, uh, you know, a sponsor just not getting their, their brand on a shirt, uh, you know, on the pitch. You mentioned goodwill there. Have you had any examples so far? I know you can't talk out of school too much. There's a whole client privilege thing that needs to be in play. But have you had any examples so far of clients trying to enforce the the force majeure situation with suppliers or partners? Or or is there really a, a, a general sense in the industry that the goodwill created through the work so far will actually be enough to keep the contract in place, at least in the short term, because I appreciate that point that you make about sooner or later, push comes to shove and we're going to have to make a decision. Absolutely. Everybody who has some sort of exposure to the situation, whether you're a rights holder, a sponsor, or indeed you know, just someone in that supply chain, an agency, a supplier, everybody will have reached for their contract, or if they haven't, they, they need to. And the, the first question, even if you're not a lawyer, you will be aware, aware of the, the concept of force majeure. Just to explain a, a basic legal point, but one that's just important for people to sort of understand, force majeure is a legal concept which talks about, you know, essentially things happening which are outside the control or foreseeability of either party. What is important to, to remember is that you still need to have that kind of clause, uh, that, that concept recognised in a contract for it to, to be uh, something that you can rely on fully and effectively. Uh, you can't just sort of say, oh, well, you know, this has happened and therefore uh, I can terminate the contract. You know, you need to have these sorts of rights in a contract in order to do that. So that's the sort of the first point to note. But um, in terms of your question on goodwill, and I think this is probably, a, you know, sort of a more relevant thing right now, people will look at their contracts and they will see what do they have. What we are finding is that even for sort of quite complex agreements, which do have these force majeure uh, type provisions or similar, you know, cancellation, suspension type provisions, a lot of them don't necessarily fully contemplate what's going on right now or, uh, as is the case, quite a few things we're working on. We have people with events that are booked in for, you know, sort of late summer here in Europe. So that's sort of, you know, July, August, uh, September. They've hired venues, for example, or we work for venues that have been hired out. As things stand right now, all of those events and all of those venue hires and so on, which, you know, often, often will run into, you know, several hundred thousand pounds to, to hire venues, if not, you know, that, you know, event costs costing millions, 
these things can happen right now as we stand here today because the the interventions of governments all around the world only run currently to sort of, you know, in some cases April, some cases May, a few straying into June. Force majeure says generally, you know, if you are affected because of something outside of your control, then your obligations are suspended. And the big question that's going on right now is, hey, if we had to hire you the venue today, of course we couldn't do it. But if we have to hire it to you in September, well, right now we can do it. And the problem you've got is that both sides uh, need to get some kind of commercial and pragmatic agreement to say, hey, let's be honest, it would be reckless to to try and sort of keep promoting an event at a time when it's just so likely that because of what's going on right now, it is increasingly unlikely that that can go ahead. But the question is, you know, when is too, when is too far in, in the future for, to be able to say that? And, and, you know, both parties will often have a different view on that, particularly if, you know, one party, you know, needs to get out of making a payment or indeed get out of making a refund, as the case may be. Force majeure is clearly a focus point for your clients and, and everybody that they're involved with there at the moment. But is there anything else that people are focusing on in terms of clauses or areas of, of contracts? Are there any particular areas of concern that are consistently popping up apart from force majeure that people are trying to, to work through? Payment terms obviously is an area of focus because everybody is hitting the brakes on their uh, their, their budgets uh, right across the board, whoever you are, um, or at the very least is appraising money going in, money going out. So people will be looking to try and sort of delay or stall where they can if, if that is necessary to sort of prop up their business or shore up their balance sheet. I think one other area that's relevant to this conversation, because I'm conscious we're, we're sort of focusing uh, a fair bit on, on sponsors and sort of what happens there, a lot of you know well-drafted sponsorship agreements but will often have a provision that allows you know the the rights holder you know so the, the stadium or the club or whoever you are in that in that scenario will allow you to um, you know sort of provide alternative rights in the event that for some reason you can't provide the rights that were to be acquired. Sponsors will often resist this type of provision, but it it is often in an agreement in some way, shape, or form. The, the big question, of course, is you know. What is a suitable alternative? Is there a suitable alternative? Um, you'd have to say that, you know, um, in some cases, the answer to that is probably no. If you are the, the shirt sponsor, the main shirt sponsor of a football team, and you're, you know, expecting to get that brand on uh, broadcast footage all around the world, the reality is right now that is not happening. And is there therefore something instead that can be given as an alternative? The answer, quite possibly, is no. So you're seeing a lot of parties trying to sort of work out what they think is a reasonable compromise. I think it's fair to say that on average, a lot of rights holders are going to struggle to fulfil their commitments right now because there just is nothing that would be a suitable alternative. Sponsors, I have to say, certainly in our experience so far, have on the whole been pretty understanding of that. But I think what a lot of people will probably understand is that that patience and that reasonableness probably can only last so long. And I think that's understandable because of the, you know, as I said before, the, the commercial realities of what's going on here. You have paid a lot of money for something, you are not getting it. What is going to happen? Well, I think that's a, a fair point. The term unprecedented keeps getting used, and of course, rightly so. But because of how this situation is unprecedented, are there any areas of contracts that you're seeing that, that are coming to light that people are realising are just not robust enough to cover off something like this? And it's it's leaving organisations, whether that's rights holders or brands, exposed right now. 
I certainly think it's fair to say that not a lot of contracts uh, that we've been looking at fully deal with this situation. Hindsight's a great thing, but, you know, we all know what it's like to be in the heat of negotiating a deal, to get the deal over the line and people sort of getting frustrated at wanting to sort of get things done and, and sort of move on. And obviously, at that time when you're negotiating a deal, understandably, and I've been in these situations many times, you know, the, the principals, the parties might not be too focused on what happens if there's a pandemic? Because for a start, up until a month or two ago, that hadn't really been a big issue for the sport ever. What we are therefore finding is that, you know, there might be provisions in agreements that deal with kind of you know, early termination or non-provision of rights. What you get in a lot of cases, though, is that as sponsorships have become increasingly complex, they're not just about, you know, in-stadia advertising, for example. They have huge exposure to digital rights uh, inventory and, and exposure to data all things which are good. On the one hand, that has meant that you've got rights holders selling a whole lot more. On the other hand, it means that um, there is a sort of a, a much bigger pie. And quite often you find that the, the fee that is paid by a sponsor is not allocated to each of those different sets of inventory in terms of the sponsorship rights. And what that means is that it's far more difficult to then decide what the cost of non-delivery of, say, you know, the uh, in, in-game uh, inventory is versus, say, some of the shall I call it, off the pitch uh, inventory, which has increasingly been being delivered, you know, in form- formats like social media uh, and, and similar, you know. Um, so that is an area of debate where, you know, where we see quite a bit of discussion. Sponsors will say, well, you know, let's be honest, the main part of this deal was for us to, you know, to, to have live matches televised and the other stuff was sort of peripheral. Of course, rights holders will say, well, you know, is that really the case? Because I think it is widely agreed now that, you know, digital media is uh, and, and data usage in sponsorships is one of the very biggest uh, areas of growth that we've seen in the last probably 10 years. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting debate, but one where the contract is often not giving the answer immediately. Well, I've asked all of those questions so far because I'm reminded of something that somebody pointed out to me earlier on this week that Ricardo Ford, who's the head of global sponsorships at the Coca-Cola company, has recently spoken about how, as of right now, there is nothing more important than a good contract. And if I think I could see you right now, you're probably nodding your head. But as a as a general question, rather than just a crisis-focused question, do you think generally there is enough knowledge amongst the industry on what a good contract in this space looks like? I think there is. Like I just said a little earlier, right now people have a huge amount of pressures to deal with. There is no point sitting in an ivory tower being the wise owl lawyer telling them what the you know what the best contract should be and what theirs doesn't say. I would agree with your your comment. You know, yes, I would always advocate people taking a little more time, and you know, unfortunately that might attract a little more cost. But you know, getting the getting the contract right and also doing a bit of um, you know future proofing, sort of you know road testing it, putting it through a few scenarios and seeing what comes out. I know that that requires people to put a bit of time in, but you know. In the same way that, you know, a lot of businesses um, might not have sort of asked themselves the question of what would happen if we had a sort of a temporary shutdown. And some might say to me, well, why on earth would they do that? It's, you know, it's almost never happened before. But in the same way that, you know, a lot of businesses just won't have done that and so, you know, won't necessarily have a plan in place for what's happening right now. A lot of contracts just don't cater for the situation we're dealing with right now. It is just such a bizarre situation. A lot of contracts will talk about, you know, suspensions of rights possibly. Um, They might talk about the odd match being missed. But, you know, the idea that you could just have the entire season for all clubs, say, 
you know, suspended and at this case indefinitely, it would be unusual to see absolutely all of that dealt with in, in the contract. Uh, I've seen it um, in some of the very biggest sponsorships we've worked on. But like I said before, people, you know, people are not often prepared to go to the very end of the detail on situations like this because it requires quite a bit of drafting and it also requires quite a bit of thought. Um, I would always recommend it, but, you know, um, it, it just is the case that, um, you know, the, as I say to clients, you know, the best the best deals are ones where the contract lives in a, in, a, in a filing cabinet and never comes out. It is there to act as a rule book to, to maintain and monitor the relationship but, you know, a lot of great sponsorships are down to the relationship and the synergy of the two brands. And, you know, even some of the biggest ones we've worked on have had very little need to get back to their contract. Of course, what's happened right now has meant that everybody is doing that and starting to realise what their, what their world looks like. Well, you talk about taking some more time and effort and, and running contracts through scenarios, and I get the feeling that that might be something that happens a little bit more once we start to move to normality. And you talk about a good contract being one that gets signed and then put in the filing cabinet and is really just a, a rule book rather than something that we're referring to day in, day out. But I don't know, maybe as a lay person, the question I think I want to ask is, is it truly possible to have a contract that is flexible where it's needed to accommodate a changing sports delivery landscape where, like like you said, such unexpected things happen that people just wouldn't even really think about it. Is that just the force majeure that w- that is in most contracts or, or can the goal really be about it coming down to having a, a really good relationship, a deep relationship, a trusted relationship, one where the rights holder deeply understands the objectives of the brand and it's not just about those things you spoke about earlier about about digital and, and delivery of events and that the contract is not the only partnership document that's relied on in those times. First thing I'd say is that, you know, without sounding too much of a lawyer, you know, a lot of sponsorship contracts or similar, they'll have what we call a front end and a back end. The front end is, you know, the, the legals, if you like, the terms and conditions, you know, the, the dates on which you make payments and, and so on. Um, a lot of the back end will deal with the detail. In particular, it will deal with the inventory the things that will be done, the rights that will be given, some of the methodologies that will be employed, the brand guidelines that will be followed and so on. Those are sort of, um, if I can call them slightly softer uh, uh, agreements that sort of set out the sort of the, you know, the the, um, the pathway for the, for the two parties to follow. I think it's safe to say that, you know, beyond a certain value these days, sponsorship uh, arrangements are really big investments. They will be carefully thought out in most cases um, and, uh, and they will be often long-term investments. For that reason, they they are harder to pull together. But like a lot of good relationships, they take a while to put into place, but then they stay in place for for a good while. You know, there's plenty of good examples of, you know, 10 or even 20-year sponsorship arrangements being in place. And we can all, if we stop and think about it, think of a brand that is, you know, completely synonymous with a sport that we love or a sporting event that we love. These things, so these things change over time, but, you know, the fact is they don't change that often where they're, very large and very, um, you know, well thought through partnerships. And, and for that reason, parties will have very strong relationships at a sort of a non-legal level. Some of our clients that, who do, do, do what I would regard as a very good job of looking after their sponsors and brands, you know, are constantly sort of, you know, just, you know, in communication with them, you know, it's almost constantly. So they will have a very good feel for what that brand's trying to do, what its pressures are, what, what its own business issues might be, and will at least try to 
work alongside them and, and act in what I would call true partnership to try and resolve all sorts of uh, issues that happen from time to time. I mean, you've got to remember that whilst sport has got this issue right now, there's plenty of situations where sponsors themselves might have had an issue in their own sector, which might not be a sports sector, and where rights holders have been flexible as well. So there is, you know, some precedent in the past for, for things, you know, being, being, you know, on the shoe being on the, on the other foot. And I think that if you have that kind of partnership, then the contract is, is there to um, act as the, the backbone. But, you know, uh, the thing that will get you through this is having that strength of relationship. And equally, if you don't have that, I think it's very, very easy for parties to sort of not fully understand each other and just say, well, hang on a minute, I've paid you 10 million quid. Why didn't we get this? I think we want our money back or we're going to terminate. You know, that, that's where you run into those sort of scenarios. I think you make some great points there, particularly the ones about where a sponsor may have been impacted in a non-sponsorship agreement-related area and rights holders have had to be flexible in the past. I think that's a really good point. It's clearly a challenging time for lots of us, but some brands, they're seeing opportunities and no doubt rights holders anywhere in the world would love to speak to them right now. However, because of and considering the current environment, do you think they need to be approaching any new contract talks in a different way to normal? Quite, quite possibly. I mean, I think to, to sort of go back a step, I mean, uh, there's a bigger question and that might not be for this, uh, for this discussion. You know, coming out of this situation, you mentioned the word unprecedented earlier, but I think another word, um, you know, sort of um, another word that's, or another concept that I hear a lot is sort of, you know, um, irrevocable or irrevocable change, you know, that what is happening right now, not just in sport, but in life for all of us, it's going to lead to some some sort of step changes in, in what we do, how we live and so on, which mean that we might not go back to the way things were, you know, the way we fly around the world constantly maybe, um, you know, and so on. When it comes to sponsorship, there is an interesting debate being had right now about what this situation means for sponsorship. Uh, we've talked a lot through this conversation about how much, you know, how much money is put behind these deals, how big they are, how long they can be. By no means is this situation going to kind of uh, spell the end of that. But I think it has asked a question in the boardroom of sponsors all around the world that's probably never been asked, asked, asked before, and that is, well, hang on a minute. If we made this major investment and it turns out that, you know, through no fault of anybody, we're not getting what we wanted out of it, is, is this the right way for us to market our brand? Or is there a better way or a different way? Or should we take that big, you know, that big salami and slice it into a lot of thinner pieces and spread it in different ways? I'm not saying that I think that that is what should happen, but I think it is fair to assume that these questions will be asked and it will cause a bit of pause for thought for, for some sponsors at least who may have been quite materially affected by what's going on right now. You know, what should what should rights holders be doing, you know, out of all of this? Well, I think that they are going to have to address the issue head on when they have conversations with sponsors, which is, you know, we hope this never happens again. But, you know, clearly I think it's safe to say that, you know, the way in which contracts are drafted and deals are structured will be different. Um, that point I talked about earlier, you know, if you had, say, 10 things in your rights inventory, it won't be unusual to see possibly the, the fee allocated to each of those, you know, into the, you know, in dollar or potential value so that the answer is quickly uh, obtained as to what, you know, what might happen if one or more of those pieces of inventory isn't delivered. I think things like that will, will come up whether rights holders like that or not. And that's just a symptom or a sort of a, an outcome of, of the situation we've got right now, which is that a lot of people don't know the answer to those questions. 
been lots of great points so far and I want to sort of shift the conversation or the questions to how you see us coming out of this and and you started to allude to it there with changes in, in contracts but following on from all those things that we've spoken about let's say a rights holder sitting there listening to the podcast you've made some great points you've got their brain ticking over immensely what would your 60 second I know we shouldn't ask for this from a lawyer, but free of charge legal advice be to both brands and rights holders who, who might be worried about their contract, but you know they've just been sitting back stressing about it and haven't really had any conversations about it yet. There will be a, quite a few people out there. Um, the, the first thing, you know, the most obvious um, that you don't need a lawyer to tell you is you know, work out where you stand. Have a look at your contract. Um, you know, make sure the basics are covered. You know, did it actually ever get signed um, and dated? <laughs> you know, um, uh, you, 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 you'd be surprised, but you know, it, it's these little formalities that often don't don't get dealt with as well as they should be in some cases. But you know, clearly the the, the position here, if you haven't had a conversation with your um, counterparty before you have any conversation in this situation, or indeed any situation, whether the contract or a sort of a relationship, a commercial one, is work out what your rights are or, or are not, you know, work out how strong your position is. That's not to say you then work out how hard to push on the other on the other party. You know, it may be that um, as we've touched on quite a bit in this conversation, you're going to be reasonable anyway because, you know, everybody's in the same boat on this one. No one wants this, but it's happening all the same and it's affecting us badly, particularly in the sports sector. But I think you have to understand what your position is so that if conversations either don't go well or you can't find an arrangement, or you can only find an interim agreement that will only last till, you know, say, the end of a particular month, say June. What happens then? You know, you need to be armed with the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that at least you can, you know, be making informed decisions. Um, to executives out there, obviously, you'll have your board all over you asking questions and sort of uh, wanting to know where you stand. You also need to engage with the the the, the counterparty. So, if you're a rights holder, that would be with your sponsor. And you need to make sure that you know conversations are happening at the right level, um, and that they are happening in the you know on the right timetable and time frame. You know, there's no point going straight in with a proposal until you've uh, you know if it turns out that the other party has absolutely no interest in that, and in which case you're probably having a slightly more awkward conversation. You're trying to rescue things to sort of get it back on track. I don't need to sit here and tell people how to do their job. You know, people who do these sorts of things in sport, these executives um, are very very good at their jobs. And this is as I said before. For me, primarily about relationship management at the moment and not throwing the, the contract in their faces. But, you know, the key, key to that is obviously understanding, you know, what's going on. And, yeah, of course, I would uh, recommend, you know, speaking to the to the in-house lawyer or the external lawyer that, that, that you use. Um, you know, we are, for example, because we know a lot of businesses don't have the, 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 the funds to do it, we are talking to anyone from the sports sector at the moment for up to an hour about what's going on in their world. You know, with regard to the coronavirus situation, because we know that people that might not have had the time, but they might not also have the budget. And the fact of the matter is that we <laughs> we want people to come out of this situation alive and well, and uh, in in the the least bad situation that they can be in. And so um, that that's uh, just something that we've been doing to try and make sure that people can at least get some advice and make some informed decisions. Here, here, I agree with you completely. Going back to our question earlier about good contracts and i know it's only been a short time of impact with COVID 19 so far but 
with the listeners now knowing some of those legal considerations that we've spoken about, and you started to allude to it a little bit when you spoke about assets being individually listed and prices potentially being attached to them in future contracts, is there anything else? How do you see the, the current situation changing on how commercial agreements work and are going to be structured as we start to move out of this and, and hopefully return to as much normality as possible? We've touched on quite a few of them, and I don't want to, you know, bore, bore your listeners any longer with um, by repeating points. But I, I think a real impractical issue that's arisen out of a lot of these contracts is, like, you know, like we touched on before, in the sense that if I know right now that it's almost certain that an event can't happen, or that the commercial viability of that event can't happen, then the ability to sort of do something about it should should exist now, not until we both wait until the day before and say, well, I guess we can't run this event. We've seen that so many times. People are understandably waiting for the other side to cancel because their terms and conditions might mean that you know the, the, the refund options are different. Everybody has got to protect their own commercial interests here, and, and I understand that. But I think that you know certainly if we're advising people in the future on either side, we will be just sort of saying, listen, the fact of the matter is this has happened. And unfortunately, whilst uh, we can see that the world is learning how to deal with COVID-19 um, and we can see that numbers are being stabilised and, and falling in some countries which have been badly affected, what seems to be pretty clear is that this situation isn't just going to go away. You know, This is unfortunately not a war with an enemy where you can sign a truce and that's it. There could be a second wave of, of this situation and uh, whilst I absolutely uh, hope that does not happen, I think that anybody entering into any kind of deal going forward needs to take account of the fact that, you know, as I said before, I think the world will be irreparably changed in some ways. And therefore, as we draft deals in the future and work with our clients, we'll be making sure that obviously they have the right ability, the right the right level of flexibility because that's been the very biggest finding for I think, you know, just about everybody, if they're honest with themselves, is that their contractual arrangements have probably not been as flexible as they would have wanted, whatever side they are on. And so the question is going to be, what further flexibility do we need to get out of agreements, get into agreements? So I think, uh, to be honest, Daniel, you know, coming out of the situation, the single biggest thing that I think people will be looking for is to achieve greater flexibility in their contractual arrangements, whether that's to help them get out of a deal or to enforce it or to find a, a better alternative but in a, in, a, in a more enforceable way. Things like this, uh, I think, will get a lot more attention now because... As I said before, the situation could happen again, but I think people's psychology in, in transactions will have changed and changed forever. And I think that there will be a much greater focus on that side of things as we, as we look to transact in the future. I have this impression that all lawyers finish the day like the guys in suits did where they head upstairs and have a whiskey and a cigar and they they debrief about the day's adventures. So I want you to take me into those conversations that you have with your legal colleagues. What are the short-term and medium-term thoughts that you guys have as professionals as to the state of, of sports and entertainment as a result of COVID-19? And, and like, what do you talk about it's going to look like when you come out the other side? Well, uh, we talk about a lot of things. I mean, um, unfortunately, to dispel, um, to dispel your uh, image of... Don't do um, that to I, me. <laughs> I don't have a big office in New York. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I do, as it happens, um, 
have a couple of uh, guys in my team and girls uh, who, who, who like whiskey. So we have actually got a little whiskey club going at Flatgate and we do actually do uh, have a debrief at the end of the day. Um, I actually recommend it to everybody, including a virtual uh, beer or whiskey, which is what we do at the moment. But it's a great way to sort of uh, talk to your colleagues in a sort of a uh, offline manner. But what are we talking about right now? I mean, there's some good and, yeah, there is some bad. I mean, if I perhaps do the bad first, I mean, as, as I said right at the beginning of this, you know, my, my real worry is that sport is um, historically, it's been regarded as something that's almost like recession-proof and bulletproof. You know, it just does not get affected by anything. And certainly if I think about life in the UK through the global financial crisis, you know, working in sport was, was an absolute winner. It, you know, it, it, it just was a, a great sector to be in because in relative terms, it was able to carry on as usual. And we all thought, well, isn't that great? Of course, I would say sport and entertainment, um, live entertainment in particular, obviously, are probably the, the, the single biggest loser out of this whole situation. But the only other possible exception is the, the sort of the travel uh, and uh, airline industry. But, you know, sport is, is very ill-prepared for this. No, I don't think it could have prepared for this. You know, all the contracts in the world can't deal with some of the situations we're dealing with right now. And my worry is that, you know, particularly sport has so many small to medium-sized entities who, who are critical to that supply chain. Sport can be a very thin margin game, um, can be a very high turnover game as well. That means that you'll have a lot of businesses who are potentially exposed to real solvency issues if we can't find some solutions pretty quick. As I said before, this is ultimately just about time. How long is this thing going to go for? Because, you know, if the event can't happen, if the league can't be uh, started up again, whatever the sport is, whatever the format, you know, the fact of the matter is that there are a whole bunch of businesses out there who live and breathe just for these leagues and events. And if they're not there, they have nothing. And my real worry is that for a lot of these businesses uh, that survive and focus solely on the, the sports and entertainment sector, that if this isn't resolved soon, they may not be able to write it out. And like a lot of things, you know, um, you can dial down a business and keep it ticking over quietly, mothball it if you like. And I know a lot of people are doing that, including some of our clients. But once something is gone, it's 10 times harder to rebuild it. And, and I just, you know, that is our great, great big worry is that, you know, that, that the industry will suffer some big scars, um, some which might not heal for a very long time. I suppose on the more positive side, you know, there's been some really interesting and innovative steps that have been taken, um, and some of it, I think, will stick around when life returns to whatever normal then looks like. There's been a lot of talk about esports and how they're going to be a big winner out of this situation. My personal view is they're not going to be a, a massive winner alone. I mean, you've got to remember a lot of esports formats um, thrive on, you know, arena-style tournaments and live content. Um, clearly, they, like anybody else who does that sort of thing, are going to be affected. So I don't think it is it is right to say that they are going to be the big winners out of this because some parts of the esports ecosystem, uh, including bits that we work for, are having a tough time of it. Uh, that said, um, the great news for esports is that I think it has got onto the, uh, well, it was probably already on the agenda of a lot of traditional sports clubs, leagues, etc. I would say if it wasn't on the agenda, it now is. And if it was on the agenda, which it will be for, for many already, it'll be pushed up the agenda, not, not just, to prepare for the next uh, coronavirus situation. God hope there isn't one. But because it has proven itself to be a very agile way for sport to connect with its fans at a time when they haven't got the usual platforms. And people will obviously say, well, yeah, but you know, if those platforms come back, then is there that need? Well, for sure, I don't think the demand will be quite so high. 
but I do think that there will be some really innovative steps taken now which will stick around and which will teach particularly sort of more traditional sports a thing or two about how to increase their fan engagement and potentially, you know, develop you know, commercial rights that they didn't have before. So I think that that is a real positive to come out of the situation. And right now, yes, I think we have to look for the positives too, because whilst there is a hell of a lot of uh, uncertainty and unfortunately some bad news around, you know, we have to, to look ahead and to see what we can learn from this and uh, also to see where we can take some, some, good, uh, some good findings and, and to sort of develop those into the future. Great to finish on a positive note. James Earl, partner and head of Sport Business Group at Flaggate, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside sport business law. Daniel, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure, mate. So many tough situations and scenarios for us all to work through right now. And I'm super proud of how I've seen some rights holders and brands work through this together and hope that we can all support each other and help the industry return to normality as soon as possible. I'm keeping an eye out for organizations adjusting and being flexible in this time so I can share some of the amazing things that they are doing. So please, if you see any cool stuff, big or small, send a link my way so I can include it in a future show and hopefully provide some inspiration for you all. I am mulling over and looking to put a show together which is kind of gathering a bunch of mini examples with some commentary from industry experts, almost like little mini case studies, if you will. Thanks again to James Earl for coming on the show and sharing his amazing expertise and insights. I hope you got a lot out of it. I hope it's helped. If you want to connect with James, just search for him on LinkedIn or visit fladgate.com. That's F-L-A-D-G-A-T-E. And if you're an Aussie or Kiwi working in sport in the UK or looking to move to the UK and work in sport, James is a founding member of the Muller Group, which is a networking group designed to help and support each other. And in fact, in these times to help keep things going, they are creating a Slack group to connect and share on. So be sure to get in touch with James and check that out. And while I have you, just a little bit of trivia. The Muller Group takes its name from Johnny Muller, who was a, a leading Victorian cricketer who led the famous 1868 Aboriginal cricket tour of England. And it was famous not just because it was comprised of Aboriginals, not just because it was the first Australian cricket tour of England, but in fact, it was actually the first organised group of Australian sports people to travel overseas. Interesting stuff. That's a wrap for episode 82. Thank you so much for joining me and stay safe. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And if you do, I'll make sure I give you a shout out just like I did for Tom and Richard. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.